I'm getting there, don't worry. The back of your sheet is the outline of this talk. And congratulations to Shane for getting through the reading of the genealogy. This is the week that you pray you're not rostered onto reading the Bible. It's actually one of the parts of the Bible that people ponder wondering why is it there? And that's actually a great question that I'm not answering this morning. But genealogies are actually very important, that's why God inspires them. And they're important because the son of somebody is the heir of the family estate, the heir of the kingdom. And Jesus is God's heir in every sense of the word, the son fulfilling every Old Testament promise to David, to Abraham and to Adam. This morning, I'm going to concentrate on the promise of salvation that, that uh, John brought and that Jesus fulfilled. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we do pray you'd help us to understand this part of your scriptures, that we might understand what John was saying and how he prepared the way for Jesus, and that we might understand Jesus and the salvation that he has brought. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Let's turn first to John's offer of salvation. For he came into the land under judgment. The opening verses about the rulers who were there is an indication of the history and the moment and the time. Because we're not dealing with myth and fantasy. We're dealing with a real place, real time, real people. But it's not simply pointing to a moment in history, but reminding us of how desperate the situation was for Israel at that time. They were a conquered land at that time, with rulers ruling over them who were the enemies of God, the Romans on one hand, and their puppet kings, the Herodians, on the other hand. There are seven Herods in the Bible, by the way. If you're a little confused where they are, there's three generations of them, this is the second generation of them, and they were degenerate and awful people. But they had been promised, the Israelites had been promised, a new age, the Messianic age, the time when the Messiah would come and they would have salvation. They would be rescued from their enemies and they would be forgiven of their sins, the sins that had got them under this terrible situation. And they would, in fact, start to rule the world over these nations that had so conquered them. Then this prophet arrives out of the wilderness, calling the people to undergo a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we talk of baptism, we've got to stop thinking about church. We're not talking about church baptisms. When Forget the questions of children and whether they should or shouldn't be baptised. Forget the questions of whether they can be sprinkling or dunking or whether you need to be by full immersion. Or Forget all those questions. Try and get them. You weren't thinking about them and now you are. Now I want you to stop thinking about that. What I want you to think about is baptism is just washing. That's all it is, washing. Now think about washing. 
What about washing away of dirt? In this case, symbolic washing of spiritual dirt, a washing of our spiritual defilement that comes because of sin. But the key was not the baptism. The key was the repentance. Repentance is not the feeling of being feeling sorry. You may feel sorry before repentance, during repentance or after repentance and you may never feel sorry really. Feeling sorry has got nothing necessarily to do with repentance. It's a change of mind that reflects the change of your heart and that will lead you to change behaviour. I'm sitting down one day looking at the Kellogg's cornflake packet. Life is desperate when you read the cornflakes packets. But it was a desperate day and as I read, I found out what percentage of cornflakes was made of sugar. It then caused me to pose a very important question for my life. Why have I been taught to scatter sugar on the top of cornflakes when it's fundamentally made of sugar? And so I thought, this is wrong, so I will stop doing it. So I started having my cornflakes without sugar. I repented. I didn't feel sorry, but I repented. I changed my mind, I changed my heart, I changed my direction. And for two weeks, I didn't take any sugar <laughs> on any cornflakes until about two weeks later when I was obviously in my, one of those states of minds again at breakfast time, I scattered sugar over the top and started eating and it was so sweet, I couldn't believe it. And then I felt sorry that I had repented earlier and I have repented, I've never had sugar on my, in fact I've given up cornflakes, they're too sugary to start with. But you see, there was a repentance that had very little to do with, it's, a, it's an everyday event when you change your mind. But it's a change of mind that is a real change of mind because it changes the way you live. Here we have John calling upon the people for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now what is extraordinary here is that John was claiming the forgiveness of sins. For those who repent and express their repentance in baptism, he was offering forgiveness. What an idea forgiveness is. What a hope forgiveness is. What a necessity. What a dream of being fully forgiven. Forgiven for all that I have ever said that I shouldn't have. All that I didn't say that I should have. All that I've ever done that I shouldn't have. Or not done that I should have. The slate wiped completely clean. Because of my age, it's a very dirty slate. No dirtier than yours, it's just I've had longer than most of you to write on it. But hang around and yours will be as full of mine. Because I'm no different to you, no more sinful, no less sinful. But we sure muck it up during our lifetime, don't we? It's so hard to imagine that it would ever happen 
that I could be fully forgiven that most of the time, most of us hide away from what we've done. Oh, we hide it from others, of course, but we hide it from our own selves. We rationalise away our failures, explaining our errors. Or we excuse ourselves of things that (laughs) we wouldn't excuse other people of, but it's somehow different in our case. Or we try to claim our, our good deeds will somehow outweigh our bad deeds. Frankly, we can't bear the face the truth about ourselves. <laughs> These days, I much prefer to... You know, God's been really kind to me because over recent years, my eyes have got worse and worse. And that's good because I look in the mirror and it's still the same person I used to be. It's just... My eyes can't see so well, and so just provided I don't actually put glasses on, I don't actually see what I now really look like. How wrinkled, how blind. Well, you see, I don't want to look in the mirror of the soul because I might see what I'm really like. But here was the promise of the prophet repent in the waters of baptism, and you will be forgiven your sins. Once I know there's forgiveness of sins, I can confront my sins. I can admit my sins. I can say, yeah, I did that, but I'm forgiven. This promise from God was because John was the voice in the wilderness. The wilderness was an important part for Israel, not because they were ancient world greenies concerned with preservation of deserts, but because the wilderness was was where they came from, was where they became a nation under God. But that's where Moses led them out of the slavery in Egypt, out into the wilderness to become the people of God. But that's where they met God out in the wilderness and they had their constitution and their law given to them. But more directly... John is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40. You see it there in verses 4 to 6, where it's quoted for us. It speaks to the nation, this chapter, Isaiah 40. It speaks to the nation, assuring them that their warfare is over. Who was their warfare with? The Babylonians? Yes. But more importantly, their warfare was with God. That is why they'd been sold into slavery in Babylon, But God is now saying, it's over. Comfort, comfort my people. Assure them of the forgiveness of sins. The warfare will be over. There's a voice crying out in the wilderness. And that voice is John, who has come hundreds of years after Isaiah, but is promising this great thing. Look with me there, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be lifted, every mountain shall, hill shall be made low, the crooked will become straight, the rough places will will become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here was their salvation. Here was the moment of their salvation. God was going to come and visit his people and he sent his messenger ahead, John, to get ready for the coming of God to be with his people once more in forgiveness. And so the voice 
in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But remember, friends, whenever salvation comes for one person, it means judgment for another. Salvation comes with the fire of judgment. For just as God saved the people out of Egypt, he brought destruction on the families of Pharaoh's household in Egypt. And just as he saved them out of Babylon, so he destroyed the Babylonian Empire to save his people. And so he would save his people now by bringing judgment on his enemies. Make sure you're not one of the enemies. I long for the day of justice and judgment. Make sure you're on the right side of justice, on the right side of judgment. Don't get caught up in the fire of judgment. Repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins to be in the salvation of God. John's message met with a variety of responses as this message always meets with a variety of responses. We see them here in Luke 3. There are those who are avoiding the message and there are those who are seeking to repent. He warned the crowds who were coming out for baptism against avoiding the message. He warns them in the strongest terms. Look at verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Those were the days when a preacher didn't have to tread lightly. You didn't have to avoid being politically incorrect and you didn't have to worry about trigger alerts, did you? You brood of vipers. It's a great statement, really. But hang on, you say, hang on, Philip, these are the people, verse 7, who are coming out to be baptised. Why is he attacking the people who are coming? He's not attacking the people who are staying at home. The very people who are coming out to him, he attacks like this. Why? Well, the answer is that though they may appear to be coming, they're actually avoiding the essence of his word. They were avoiding repentance. He didn't want people to be baptised. That's just a symbol. He wanted the reality. Baptism was the symbol of repentance. You can have the symbol without the repentance, but it's of no value to you. He wanted the reality of repentance. Every now and then you see people walking around with a University of Oxford or the University of Cambridge sweatshirt. That means their auntie has been a tourist recently. It has nothing to do with attending those great universities, let alone the possibility of studying there. Attending universities, studying at university, two quite different things. And having your auntie go to the, the souvenir shop is another thing altogether, isn't it? You can get baptised... But if you're not repentant, well, you may as well have sent your auntie down to get baptised for you. It was a waste of time and effort, wasn't it? Their lives had to be changed. They had to show the outcome of repentance. They had to bear fruits, the fruits in keeping with repentance. He warned them of thinking that just because they were Israelites, the sons of Abraham, that they would be safe, they'd be looked after, they'd be saved. Why, he said, 
God could turn these stones of the desert into the sons of Abraham. The axe is coming. Bear good fruit or you'll be chopped down and thrown into the firewood. But on the other hand, some that came who were genuine in their repentance and they asked about bearing fruit. The crowds, the tax collectors, the soldiers. And to all three, John pointed, interestingly, very importantly, for Sydney-siders in the 21st century, John pointed to money issues. Fascinating how often the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and the apostles actually attacks us on our materialism. The wealthy should be sharing their possessions. The tax collectors should be collecting the right amount of taxes and not lining their own pockets. The soldiers shouldn't be extorting money as standover merchants. The soldiers should learn to be content with their own wages. Because these actions, they're not going to save you. The actions stem from the genuine repentance, the genuine change in heart, the genuine change in mind. Good works never save, but are the results of being saved. If you're not saved, your good works are a waste of time. But if you are saved, you will do good works that express your salvation. But still, how can simple repentance lead to salvation? What about the people who have been cheated by the tax collectors? What about the victims of soldiers standing over them with threats? Are they other victims to have no justice when God comes to judge the world? If God just winks his eye because someone went and had a quick bath in the Jordan, does that mean there is no justice? And so we read more of John's promise of salvation. But John's not the saviour. He's the forerunner of the saviour, the forerunner of the Messiah, the greater one who is coming to bring salvation, salvation and judgment. The one who is coming who is so much greater than John that John couldn't even serve him as a slave by undoing his sandals. And this greater one is bringing a greater baptism. For John is offering a washing, an external washing of the body, symbolising forgiveness. But the one who's coming, he's bringing a different kind of washing, a baptism of the spirit and of the fire. This was to be the real outpouring of God's spirit and the real outpouring of God's wrath in judgment. This was the one who is coming with the spirit to transform the people, as the prophet Ezekiel had promised, bringing new life to the dead, moving people, changing people to want to keep the law. And with this coming of the spirit would come the fires of judgment. The image John is using here is the image of the harvest where the grain is separated from the chaff. Or if you're an American or under 40 in Australia, the chaff. Depends where you, which age and generation you're in, I think. But those two things are being separated out. The, the, the grain's being saved, but of course the chaff 
being burnt. John was warning the people of the arrival of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, the day of salvation, the day of judgment. And John, when he was put in prison, John then had the arrival. The arrival came of Jesus onto the public stage of Israel. Jesus was the true Israelite, the true son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of David. He had been baptised by John, obeying the prophet's call to the nation and identifying himself fully with the sinful nation. And in prayer, a spirit and a voice came upon him from heaven. The spirit descended like the dove of peace that returned to Noah's ark. The spirit who anointed the kings like David. The spirit of God who would come to the Messiah as Isaiah prophesied, the spirit who would come not only to the Messiah, but to the suffering servant of the Lord. But the voice declared, that voice there in verse 22, declared, you are my beloved son, which is a quote from Psalm 2. The great psalm of the Messiah, that declared the Messiah would come to be the ruler of the world, declared that the Messiah would be the beloved son of God. John the Baptist didn't claim to be the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus didn't have to claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, because the voice of God, the voice from heaven, claimed it for him when it said, you are my beloved son. That's the way of saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are Psalm 2, you are the ruler of the world. But then comes the shock announcement which because we don't know our Bibles well enough, we're not shocked. Because we know our gospel well enough, we are sh not shocked. It really was shocking. Because he adds, with whom I am well pleased. That's not in Psalm 2. That's in Isaiah 42. That indicates that Jesus is the suffering servant who in the judgment of the world would lay down his life for the salvation of others. This is the suffering servant. Turn with me in Isaiah. Turn, turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Because the servant's songs go from Isaiah 43 to Isaiah 53. It's page 575 in the Pew Bibles. Page 575, I think that's correct. Isaiah 53. And of course, the very famous verse, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But notice what's happened. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or look down in the same chapter, second half of verse 9 there. Although he had done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, makes many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, makes the intercessions for transgressors. Here is the basis for salvation. Here is the basis for confidence in salvation. We're just about to have a series over the next few weeks of confidence. First confidence you need to see is the confidence in salvation. Because we're not saved by our good works. We can't be. We don't do enough of them. And we've done too many of the other kind. But we're not saved by our repentance, as if that is the one good work that will count for all the other bad ones that we've done. And we're not saved, actually, by John's message, because he wasn't the Messiah. He didn't die. He died as a martyr, but he didn't die as a saviour. John paid for his own sin. He couldn't pay for yours and mine. Only the Lord Jesus was good enough to pay the price for sin. And we're not saved by God ignoring our sin. See, forgiveness without payment is simply condoning sinfulness. When I say, oh, that's all right, it doesn't matter, I'm saying it doesn't matter. But it does. We are saved by Jesus paying for us. Paying it all for us. Do you remember the words of 1 John? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear me misread that verse? Did you hear me miss out something? I actually left some words out there. In verse 10, 9 rather. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I left it out, you see. What, what did I leave out? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and, don't say it, just think it. He is faithful and something to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a verse you hear often, isn't it? But what have I left out? He is faithful and to forgive us our sins. Now, I don't want you to cheat. Just quickly say to the person next to you the word that I've left out. They just got yourself committed, you see, now. See, it's a wonderful thing to get wrong, anything in life. Because when you get something wrong, there's a chance of improving your mind, isn't it? So never be embarrassed about getting things wrong. Rejoice and be glad, because you've got a chance to change and to get better. So if you got it wrong, you got it wrong. And that's a good day. And if you got it right because you know it already, 
Well, praise God that someone taught you the Bible verse properly when you were learning memory verses, but stop being proud. He is faithful and loving. He's wrong. Is wrong. Oh, oh. Ah, yes, yeah, it's wrong. He is faithful and merciful. Is wrong. As well. What of course is, is he's faithful and, you can call it out now, just. Hang on, just. What's it got to do with justice? It's got everything to do with justice. Because he has paid the penalty in full, that is why he is able to forgive us of our sin. Because it's been paid for. It's not that he just ignores sin. It's not that he's just loving and kind and cuddly and will accept you, doesn't matter how stupid and wrong and immoral and decadent you are. No, no. He's loving and kind and merciful, so much so that he actually has paid for it in the death of his one and only son. Down the beach the other day, saw a crowd of very large islanders walking towards me and occupying most of the walkway and so I stepped to one side. I'm not stupid. And I saw them walking past me in phalanx and it was quite awesome. And then I saw one of the shirts sign at it and then I noticed that mothers did too. They weren't a group of islanders. They were a group of Christians. Because on the shirt was written, paid in full. That's how I knew they were Christians. Because they knew the justice of God had been met in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and their sins had been paid in full. And that's why we can have confidence I can never have confidence if it relies upon me other than confidence of hell. But if it's all been paid in full already, I'm in. I have full confidence. This is the confidence of every saved person. Salvation. Because it's not what we do, but what Christ has done for us already. My repentance is something I mustn't avoid. And I declare my repentance in my baptism. And I must show my repentance in my good works. But I'm not saved by my repentance. I'm saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid it in full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for everything that you have done for us, but above all, for giving your Son to us, that he would live and die and rise again, paying in full our appalling sinfulness and bringing to us the news of salvation, free and full. We thank you, Father, for this. And pray indeed, Father, that we might turn back from our sinfulness and embrace the forgiveness that you have won for us in the death of your Son. 
We pray this for each other, for ourselves, that we might have confidence in the salvation that you have won for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.